Welcome to Composers On Air, a podcast presented by Music Information Center Lithuania. I'm your host, True Rozaski. We'll be hearing conversations with living Lithuanian composers who will be giving us deeper insights into their music. Vikantis Baltakas shares insightful perspectives of his international creative life as a composer, conductor, educator, and ensemble organizer. I was able to catch him for an enjoyable conversation while he's currently in Vilnius, Lithuania. This episode is brought to you by the Lithuanian Council for Culture and the Ministry of Culture of the Republic of Lithuania.
So I wanted to welcome you to this episode of Composers on Air. And you know, the more I looked at your musical life and its development, it became very clear that many of the pieces of your musical life were already in place at a very young age. You were awarded a prize for a conducting competition at age 18. You were awarded a prize for a composition competition at age 19. Active as a conductor, active as an educator, curator of projects, including theater. And it begs to question initial impulses of musical interest. And I know that you're naturally a part of the musical family, but can you remember when you crossed the threshold into finding music in your life in the first place? When did you understand that it would be your life direction? You know, this is before the thirst. It's about, it's about clarity and it's about commitment. And, you know, there's a popular question for a child we have here, which is, you know, what do you want to be when you grow up? And people will ask children this question a lot. And a lot of kids will answer firemen or policemen. So how did you know? Yeah, partially you answered the question yourself because both my parents are musicians. Yeah, that's one side. And this kind of artistic direction goes on in a few generations now, because let's say my grandfather from my mother's side was an important stage director and actor in Panevejis and Miltino theaters. Uh, my grandfather from my father's side, he was also artistically very active. So, and another part of this was, you have to think in, in this political economical situation. So in Soviet Union, it became nobody was making any money yeah so actually uh, as in the western world it's i mean if you choose a, let's say activity like artistic activity instead of doctor education i mean uh, of course you are choosing very actively also because uh, i mean this kind of financial aspect comes in in place and in Soviet Union, it made no difference if you are a doctor or if you are a musician. I mean, you are not making any money anyway. And this is somehow was a very clear philosophy of my parents. I mean, okay, you have talent for this or that. Do what you want to do. Yeah. And so that's what I have a full support from my parents. So that's the whole thing. And it was more maybe it would be more strange not to be a musician as to be a musician in my family because i mean both parents are musicians they sent us to chilani school to this very special art school i mean you're on rails basically yeah so and i remember like starting to write and going to classes of kutavichus at that moment when actually i was not yet officially allowed to be in his class so they had to write in my sister instead of me. And I was going for, uh, to learn the composition. Yeah? So it was quite early, to, to be honest. And uh, I don't know, this, this exact moment, I don't remember. This ex uh, but for me, it was very clear that I actually I'm going to write music and I'm going to, to do something on the stage. You know, this systemic issue of cultural transformation is an interesting point from the Soviet norm to the freedom vision. And I think, too, that Kutavichus was a, a symbol of that, too, right? He had a, in his own style and his own musical language, a 
possibly an inspiration for that type of freedom in the actual style of the music. Is that correct? Yes, but not uh, at that age for me. Yeah, for me at that age, Kutachus was just another teacher at school. And later I understood a little bit more and later I started to see, you know, to be conscious about what Kutachus really is and uh, what uh, which roles he plays, etc. But at that age, it was for me just another teacher, <laughs> you know. Right. So you develop skill sets in the early years. You're learning all the standard educational aspects of music, ear training, theory, orchestration, maybe not yet, but having this basic idea of putting the logic of music into your mind. And then at some point you feel the change from taking in skills to changing the direction outward, meaning then you're creating, then you're giving of yourself in the other direction. Do you remember when that happened, when this impulse of creativity or the wish to get something out of you, you know, when that happened and why that happened? Mm, yeah, difficult. Uh, I mean, yeah, it is really continuity. It was a continuity. And I remember like I was uh, starting to write, you know, like some songs for, I mean, uh, for children choir or something like that. And so that was rather what I remember. It was kind of, you know, this kind of being scared a little bit, yeah? Because uh, indeed you put yourself a little bit naked and you're in school and these kids can see you and, you know, they can like it or dislike it or something like that. So that's that I remember. But I, um, and another point was indeed I was still in the last Soviet years. I was, you know, the system was like, it was for professional composers the same. Like the state was buying works, not giving commission, but actually you supposed to, I mean, you write some piece and you propose to some commission and they buy this work, they pay for it. Yeah. So it's, it's a little bit strange system because it doesn't really relate somehow to how it's going to perform or not. <laughs> or, and they were doing uh, sometimes some anonymous competitions as well. And that was for me a kind of moment which I remember as a composer, because I, I did send to one of these competition, I mean, for buying, yeah, some works for a children choir, very simple. And I don't remember now exactly how many, but three or four were uh, selected and I got quite a lot of money, <laughs> even, you know, for that. You know? That's, that's okay. Oh, that's great. And I don't know exactly when, when it happened, when I was 16 or something, or 15 or 16 or 17, something in this area. And yeah, that was, was, was amazing. Um, but it was not, it did change somehow my direction. Okay, now I am going to be composer. Oh, now I'm going to, yeah. Uh, no, that was clear for me before. That was just some sort of confirmation that I can do that.
That's pretty exciting to get that type of recognition at that age as well. One of the interesting features of your life is this identity of conductor and composer quite early on, and you've always done it. So you've already, you have decades of experience as a conductor in addition to being a composer. And, you know, before we actually speak about the music, I thought it was interesting, you know, about the musical material. And I think anyone who knows your music knows you often re-image compositional material or let's say revisit the material but when you're composing do you envision the conducting control do you feel that you're already in an interpretive mindset while you're composing so you're thinking as a conductor while you're composing is this simultaneous mental activity 
No, these are totally two different activities. Let's say if I am going to, to conduct my pieces, I have to learn them. I really have to study. It's only, it only goes a little bit faster because it takes, let's say, one step away, which actually first to understand what the music is about. Yeah, that I mean, if I prepare a piece, my own piece, so I know what is the piece about. I don't need to dig in. But from another side, it gives you a certain knowledge, some certain practical knowledge, of course. Yeah, let's say if you need to decide to make decisions, let's say practically how it's going to be organized, this or, or that, you can, you can say, okay, of course, you know how to conduct it. And in that case, you can propose some solutions immediately into the score. Yeah, but I think these are totally different activities of the brain, to be honest. Really, when I, after that, when I'm conducting my piece, I, I have to learn from the beginning and to see uh, who is playing what, basically. <laughs> yeah. I imagine, too, you learn about the capabilities of the performers and you have to navigate that as well and see what's possible. About the actual material, though, this is kind of an interesting thing, too, is that I believe you have a process of really analyzing what you're doing, a lot of preparation in terms of conceptualizing the idea in business they talk about vision and purpose before they execute an idea and when they are looking for the solution to a problem they often tell the participants don't jump into the solution so quickly it's important not to do that it's important to actually invest for a long time before you jump into a solution so this is just a general question about the preparation or analytical process of creating a new piece. Walk us through a little bit about what that looks like. Mm -hmm. I'm not such an analytical composer, so not such a rational composer at all. Maybe that would be uh, better if I would start from a little bit bigger uh, background. So basically for me, you know, music is not very much a conceptual. Of course, it has concepts. But for me, most of all, it is a sensual art. Yeah. So I really enjoy a sound and searching for the sound. Yeah. That's what I'm doing. Yeah. This is a very different thing, you know, like when you think about music in terms of concept. Yeah. Let's say, of course, the, the, the rationality plays some role somewhere. Yeah. But let's say the very big part of my, uh, let's say, at least the beginning creative process is actually, you know, it's almost like a sound dreaming. And uh, let's say if I have some kind of certain, uh, let's say, instrumentation, certain vibrations, certain context, uh, cultural context, etc. I start to really to search what could be some really sound-wise some interesting stuff which, which actually could trigger me and actually could make me interested to, to continue to, to, to search. It's just almost like a, some sort of cloud. And after that, basically, the process of composition is trying to deconstruct that cloud. And that's where the rationality comes in, but not in the first place. Yeah, you're basically, you start really to, that's when maybe you analyze, but in a, analyze not in a classical way, but, you know, okay, I hear some, let's say, Maybe some an example, a stupid example. I hear some very thin sounds in there. Yeah, okay, fine. Okay, after that I hear uh, let's say some very fast sounds. Okay, that that's fine. But 
And now I'm asking myself a question. And let's say, do I hear one voice or several voices? One line or several lines? Yeah. Okay. In that case, it gives me maybe an idea that actually, uh, let's say, this this sound is made out of let's say some more several voices. And after that, I can ask myself, wait, are these voices somehow related to each other, or how do they relate, or they actually contradict each other, or you see, and, and so on. And uh, in this way, you can really. Uh, I arrived to some instrumentation, I arrived to some some type of how about the relationship between these, let's say, different voices, different harmonies, or afterward, indeed, you can ask, okay, what's a, what sort of harmony is there? Is this some, you know, can I hear, can I, can I describe it? Or at least can I say it's a consonant or dissonant, or maybe something in between, yeah? In such a way, I arrived to something more concrete, and at certain moment, Basically, it's just a process of understanding what you try to imagine, yeah, understanding in, in composition terms, and and when actually when you when you understand this is almost like building a physical object, yeah, a physical and, and special physical reality, yeah, and you can see okay in that physical reality, you know, if I drop the stone, it doesn't fall, but it goes up. Yeah, it's, so it's a different rule. Yeah, and when you can start to make certain rules, yeah, in that reality, which are very typical for this particular reality, this is uh, and also sort of logical in that reality, and that's where we, rationality comes in. And basically, at that moment, where I even I would be able to construct some kind of compositional technique, which could help me to realize this. Yeah.
Coca-Cola. So the the initial and I love this idea of this anti-gravitational modality, but the initial impulse is much more emotional, much more inner, much more about different types of sensitivities. And then once the material is there, then you have something to work with, something to mold, something to shape, something to to really uh, do something with. Because you said a nice thing about this business ideas, etc. So it's actually, it is indeed for me at the very beginning phase of a new piece, it's a very slow process. And I really try to, because it's very fragile very often. Because as soon you start, let's say, as soon as I would go to, I, I don't know, instrument, I would try to, uh, would try something. It has this, very often this tendency to kill everything what you have imagined before, you know? And uh, so actually I do that only at that moment where I really kind of show what I'm doing. This is not my motoric, my uh, comes, uh, and not some kind of routine thinking, but really like this very careful because really it's, it's a big danger of killing yeah so and after that it can go faster and faster but the first periods i mean like it can take months until you really know what you basically are doing so with your time expenditure and this is a common question i always like to ask but it's about what you require for a period of time are you the type of composer that needs to have a generous amount of time say in a day or even commit to a week off to compose? Or are you more a regimented, are you capable of sitting down for 30 minutes and get something done? You know, are you the nine to five work a day composer or do you really need to immerse in a generous amount of time? I know it is, uh, I'm definitely not nine to five, never have been. I mean, the, the composition process has many steps. And some are creative steps, and uh, let's say what I just described, you know, like uh, before. And some steps are just pure practical and basically stupid things to do, yeah. And basically, I realized that, let's say, in that very first phase, I can go in very slow steps because it goes about. I need to learn it. It's let's say if it is a new concept, I need to learn it. I need to start to feel at home. And, you know, next moment when I think about it, I need to get back into this uh, kind of this cloud. Yeah. And so, it, and it takes time and it's definitely like, sometimes it's very frustrating because actually that's maybe it can take sometimes just five or 10 minutes just to get really concentrated. And that's it. That's, you cannot do anything more. But that's what I have learned in my, I mean, in, in several years, I mean, uh, that actually you, I can combine now. Let's say I can combine, yes, because I want, I like to work on composition, but you know, but I cannot be always creative and I don't want to destroy things. So let's say if I feel that something takes more time and needs more time, so at the same time I can work on parts or corrections on a different piece, you know, some less creative work, which is actually doesn't intervene with, with that new one. You see, and sometimes, and when you arrive to, let's say, to a moment where you actually basically, you really know what you're doing, you're, you're Basically, it, it comes into the action. So in that case, you can really work 24 hours and this is no problem. Yeah, Yeah. as soon as you feel that clarity and you're really in the zone. I like what you said about this vulnerability of danger of potentially destroying something. And I think also it's common knowledge about your work is that you you do 
rework pieces, you create different versions of the same piece, you have, you know, titles that, in fact, you, you know, your most recent projects of this Kanti cycle of one for accordion solo, one for an ensemble, and then one for an ensemble plus electronics and so on. And so when you're looking at the material or revisiting the material, it makes me question the notion of the completion of the artwork in terms of its, let's say, essence or, or authentic identity. You know, many painters need at some point to stop painting and decide at a moment, you know, is it finished? Is it clear? Is there an inner conflict of fixed time? And that's the difference with music is that, that you're dealing with time. So you have a start, you have a double bar and your things are moving, but things are also stopping in time. But on the other hand, you're inside of that container making decisions about what's finished and what isn't finished. And it seems to me that there might be some feeling you have that it's not necessarily 100% complete. Therefore, there needs to be another version or there needs to be another um, visitation of the material so that you can expand it. What's the difference between continuation and completion? Let's say... I'm very strict to myself, composer, and uh, let's say if I feel that uh, I haven't realized the idea until the very end, you know, I, let's say that's what, what I told you, I always try to do something new and uh, go into some forest which I don't know. And let's say if I have a feeling that it's maybe your first time in that forest and you make your, your, your mistakes, and it's something doesn't work or either orchestration or some formal stuff or something like that. I'm, I'm very open to correct it. But this is a very clear end for that. Yeah, because I imagine certain, let's say, that what I described, a certain uh, musical state in a perfect state. Yeah. And uh, okay. And if I hear that actually I'm quite close to it, but not where yet. So I do correct pieces. I used to, to correct much more often when I was younger and that was logical because I mean you're still you're still learning. By the way this is the best way of learning. Learning not from a teacher but learning from your own mistakes, from your own imagination comparing to you know what you imagine and what you have. Yeah. So that's that's one thing. And so but it has a how is it it's not ongoing process. It's not it has a very clear end, at least in my mind. Yeah. And another uh, situation uh, its continuation is, uh, let's say, what what you just called uh, cycles is is related to something a little bit different. Is related to the fact that I like to work with uh, found objects, and for me, sometimes you know, like you look at the score and you uh, and you listen to something and you discover something. Actually, uh, you never wrote it consciously. I mean, it's a part of orchestration uh, or it's a part of a structure or something like that. But something actually, what I mean, but basically it is always that you compose something, but at the same time, the piece composed by itself a little bit too. Yeah. So, and that's very interesting sometimes to discover these things, which, which actually could be very interesting. Yeah, but, but you actually, you were focused on something else. And now you can go in this direction more deeper and, and this is again some forest yeah new forest 
And uh, so, for example, like this last cycle, for me, it's just a very interesting story because I started with, indeed, with accordion piece. I took a structure and, let's say, material, I would say, uh, of that piece and wrote, uh, used it for ensemble. But of course, you need to expand it. It's, it's, that you cannot just put one to one. It becomes a different piece. But after that, it became even more interesting. I found actually that the real idea which I really wanted to do, that was actually on, in the first three pages of this piece. <laughs> and, and I said, okay, but now I'm, I'm so far, I, I have now tools, I really understand how I'm working. Now I can go deeper and really try to go until the end. Yeah? And basically I took these three pages and went into a totally different site. Yeah? And, and then again, so when this piece was done, I was, it was an interesting closing situation, like, like again, okay, now I can go back to accordion, but taking the last piece of ensemble, yeah? And again, every time it's a different piece, it's not re-instrumentation, absolutely not, because the idea changed, the, the concept is changing, the perspective is changing, everything is. But this is somehow the traveling. Like, again, uh, I'm using today a lot of this metaphor, uh, walking, you know, walking in a forest, in a place where I actually have never been. And you can only imagine what it could be. But actually, when you really look at it, you, you discover many more things than you, what you imagine.
Yeah, there's kind of a mirror-like wisdom in it too, because it's it's reflecting your own state of mind and and what you're actually bringing to it. Which is why, yeah, it's not exactly the same piece. The durations are even very different, and so on. So yeah, I, I think it makes perfect sense. I wanted to turn to one of the elements or features of your work as well, and that's the idea of language. I find language in, involved in a lot of your work, and also it might speak to your international identity, this constant flux of language that you live in in your life and different languages that you speak and work with and understand. And I found it very interesting that you have pieces that you've used ancient Greek, you've used pieces in Latin. These two languages are interestingly, at this point in history, academic languages. They're not spoken languages any longer. Lithuanian, also interestingly, is one of the oldest languages. Being that it's a spoken language today is kind of amazing based on the age of the language, because most of these ancient languages are, aren't spoken anymore. So I'm, I'm wondering, was this ever conscious in your mind about accessing these ancient languages or connecting the history of the Lithuanian language in your work? It's funny because it's really funny uh, to talk about it because actually, I, indeed, it's true that I'm using languages in a funny way, but actually the funny part is that when I grew up, I never understood the language in any songs. Like, let's say my father's a big jazz melomon, yeah? And for uh, I never understood what, you know, uh, what they're singing, yeah? Because I started to learn English when I was 21. So for me, it was uh, blah, 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 da, you know, da, 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 da. It's the same thing. And it was a big, by the way, disappointment when I started to understand <laughs> some of these texts. <laughs> anyway, or let's say going to opera and having that opera in Italian. I mean, you know, so that's, and it's a funny thing, like even a family situation, you know, like my wife is, is listening something and saying, wow, that's a, that's a cool text. And I was just, wow, what's the text? Yeah. So let's say I listen to everything a little bit like a music, like abstract, not abstract, but like instrumental. Yeah. And I really need to switch something on and off, you know, in order to hear, to understand and listen to the text. I really need to switch something off and switch something on. In that case, I can start to hear the text, but I, I am less conscious about the musical part. Yeah. So this is a funny thing. And maybe that's a reason why for me, somehow this using, for example, of uh, Greek or, or Lithuanian is more expression, but not a verbal expression. Yeah, like, let's say, talking about this, uh, this piano piece, uh, very early piano piece, Pasica, a fatal, you know, like, it's just a, it's a story. It's, it's, I wrote this, by the way, for a German player, and it, it has been performed by so many nationalities, and they are, they are all learning Lithuanian for this piece, and only a few Lithuanians have been playing so far. And, but this is, it's an absurd story. It's actually, it's a world creation uh, myth, uh, Indian myth about world uh, creation. And, but I mean, it's absurd in the sense that you cannot put that in seven minute piece or five minute piece. Yeah. So 
it becomes somehow when you squeeze it in such a way, it becomes nonsense. Yeah. For the audience, Pasaka literal translation is fairy tale. And I also know from the score that there's direction that the first half of the piece is really supposed to be unchanged. In other words, you're giving a stability in the language choice, but for the second half, you have given the freedom to, for the performer or the performance location to adapt to the language where it is performed, right? On the title. But you know, uh, but to continue uh, about this, you know, like for me, it was a very conscious decision. You know, I wrote that piece for a German player to be performed in Germany for a public which will never understand what is what exactly the text is because the real text, real story, real fairy tale is not the text, not the verbal information in the piece. It's a fairy tale about somebody who is trying to tell a story. That's a fairy tale, yeah. And so, and that's why it's important that this guy or woman, you know, the, the performer really understands the text and know what they are talking about. But in a concert situation, it becomes like some very strange person trying to convince us something. Sometimes we see situations like that on the street, you know, like they, they, some people are so far in their own world and they are talking about something, you are not getting anything, but this is, they're convinced, they are so deeply convinced that it becomes very strong. That's the message. And, you know, plus, you know, in that time in Germany, you know, the Germans, uh, German public is quite rational. And I always hated the situation, you know, when they go listen to a great piece by Bach, you know, uh, with choir, and they, instead of listening, they all reading the text in the program book. <laughs> I absolutely <laughs> try to avoid that, you know, because this is not the story. This is not the essence. Yeah. And I think, too, there's always this psychological dependence on, you know, if you make the decision to use language at all, then you're already jumping into a different mindset because with music, it has more of a universality in terms of how you interpret the experience of how you're taking in the sound and where it's going and what it means. I think timbre is so much about that as well with different instruments and different sounds that are chosen. But I wonder if there's some kind of temptation of going into language for some reason of wishing to express oneself a little bit more directly because you feel the need to do it. I'm always interested, why does a composer make the decision to do an opera? Like, why does that have to happen? To many composers, it's like, yeah, I've got to write an opera, you know? So, and you've also done that. I was thinking of Cantillo 2004, this period of time, you know, why opera? Why to tell the story with language in a story form at all? You know, what came to you? And that was uh, indeed very strongly related. And that was a big, uh, you know, big question for me. Why opera? Why singing? You know, why text? Yeah. And basically uh, with a libertist, uh, Sean Joyce, by the way, an American writer, we were really like trying to puzzle this because for me, I cannot uh, start writing something, you know, and writing something, some strange text, you know, for some uh, strange way of singing, you know, uh, it doesn't convince me. Yeah, it doesn't convince me. And I really needed to answer that in order to, to be able to write. And let's say, put it stupidly, if the text is good, it doesn't need any music. If a text is bad, it doesn't need any music either. Yeah, so 
So what is the middle? Yeah. And the answer was actually strongly connected to the theme, to the subject of the piece. So basically the answer was to that, that actually the singing is extended way of talking, is extended expression. So that naturally brought us to rhetoric. And that naturally, again, rhetoric brought us to Asian Greek. And after that, it brought us to, to some, some very interesting, some exercise uh, rhetorical forms, let's say, and which kind of was sort of basis of a piece. So let's say you exercise your rhetorics and you make a hypothetical situation. Let's say the gods are leaving your city and your city is basically your world. And how do you speak to the gods? And what do you say? By the way, I'm not totally not religious, so it's just for me a different existential story, actually. How do you talk to them? What do you say to them that to keep them as long as possible in your city? Yeah? How do you convince them? And, and that's where we have found, okay, that's now it becomes interesting. So basically, so the story, and again, Sean has found some snippets on some text where, you know, you talk about this land, you know, how beautiful is here, how it's great and, you know, fantastic, don't leave. After that, you go to the next, a little bit far away, and it becomes strange and not so nice anymore. And after that, you continue so with every step until you arrive to the end of the world. And in the end of the world, it's very obscure, very dark, everything. And basically, you have it's impossible to live there. And actually, it's the only two sorts of people living there. And one is actually who dreams, uh, sleeps, and for half of a year, and after that tells a story what he, he has been dreaming. He tells to another man, and this is he was dreaming that, that the gods are leaving the city, and he's trying to convince them not to leave. And telling the story, so we have actually basically until again and uh, sort of spiral, and um, but you see basically that actually already gave to us some sort of structure for the piece. So actually, it is about that's why in this piece actually it's a lot of talking, 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 talking until it becomes more and more singing, more and more music actually because it's, and that actually gave us. Uh, an idea why do we start to sing this crazy bel canto or crazy something because you move to these crazy places we don't know and these are not natural anymore and and so that's actually that, that explained again uh, gave us a reason to use greek but uh, in that case the, the greek uh, language is only for singing so something actually again uh, something obscure something not understandable something far away and at the same time, to make the bridge to the public, actually, you have some actors on the stage which speak the local language where the piece is, is, is said. So that's, the, that's the, the structure. But but again, this is, for me, was indeed, to answer to you, for me, was indeed a big question. How to deal with language and why opera? Why singing? Absolutely. I totally agree with you that too many composers are taken as granted. Yeah.
Hallo. Hat Zidadora am Schistama. It's a seduction, and then you maybe the resources are there, and so they say, "Yeah, okay, I'll do it." It may not have as clear of an intention, so but it looks like the investment in this piece was really deep. It also sounds really personal because the whole idea of containment of cultural presence, you know, Lithuania has really seen a lot of departures. A lot of people are leaving, particularly a lot of creative people are leaving. And there are a lot of, a lot, I speak to a lot of Lithuanian composers that are living in different places now. And so there must have been some psychological element of personal interest in thinking these ideas around stability or departure or, you know, leaving or staying or all, all these things to feel secure. And I do think it becomes about this kind of emotional security and all of the ways that people are struggling with that. So it's very interesting. I wanted to ask you also about your pedagogical life, because this is also something that developed for you and this ability to transmit, the ability to inspire others. And I know you have professorships in, in Maastricht. I know that you're also you have professorships in Lithuania. How is your educational identity wrapped up in your life? And how do you navigate, you know, that hat that you wear of teaching, you know, you know, while you're creating? Some people can't do that. I mean, some people, if they're creating, that's all that, that's all they can do. But you have this ability to do both. How do you teach? I think it's a challenge. I think it's a very important question how to keep this balance. And, you know, I'm a, I'm a young teacher, to be honest, because I have started, I don't know, maybe six now years ago, seven years ago, maximum. And basically, like, let's say, 
the original impulse was just a pure financial stability yeah because i have been living for 20 years i lived only from my creative work and i was proud about it etc but you know after that you have family and you want to have a little bit more stability for that but actually what i discovered from teaching that's amazing that's uh, now at this point it really it i have to stop myself thinking about that and in creative different projects for my students and basically like I discovered uh, certain things I never expected. You know, first of all, I'm learning amazingly a lot from uh, uh, together with my students. So this is uh, basically it's always these things you never had time for to check carefully. To you, you learn to express yourself. You learn from uh, from different mistakes, and after, of course, a social aspect as well. So that's uh, I have a very good uh, contact with my students. Basically, it's just, it's not only studying. It's, it's we do a lot of social activities, and I'm really looking always for uh, when I'm going to Maastricht to meet my students again because it's it's kind of a big enrichment of my time. So something what's have started as a pure uh, let's say financial opportunity now uh, became something extra I never expected. And because I start, I like a lot. I really like. I invest so much for my students, so for project-wise, for for. I mean, they are very active. We have more. Let's say, if talk talking about Maastricht, they have nine till ten projects per year uh, with uh, music played by students inside or outside of conservatory. They are all very active and a big band. And I almost have to stop myself thinking about that because I indeed, so as you say, I need to uh, to keep composing. And, and this is a challenge. This is a challenge. And sometimes it works better, sometimes it works less. You know, it's so interesting. How do you take the formality of teaching a class because on day one, you meet the students usually in class, and then you transform that into a social potential where you're getting information or inspiration back from them into you. So you have this, you know, this synchronous energy that's going in between the students and yourself. It sounds so fantastic. I remember Leonard Bernstein used to talk about the, the idea of you're getting a lot of energy from your students, but how do you transition between the formality of a professor into this, you, you mentioned social connections. How do you organize that? I think it's a question of attitude because I consider them as, even you know at the very beginning, uh, I consider them as younger colleagues, not as small young composers. And I really deeply believe that we, we can learn, I mean, all people can learn from each other. It's because, I mean, uh, you have something I don't, don't have. And equally, we can use, we can learn from young students as well. And something they are, I mean, they are amazing in many different aspects. And that's one thing. And another thing is, I mean, the social aspect, I mean, just something what I understood later on how it works and why it works. If you have a good relationship, a really close relationship to your students or just to anybody, basically, that allows you to go much deeper in criticism as well. I can, let's say, let's say if we have been drinking beer for a while with somebody after that next day, I can tell, I can tell to this person, you know, this is, this piece is just a bullshit. And this is okay because that, that will be not understood as as a personal criticism. 
you can really go into uh, because the personal that's why this social aspect is so important because after that uh, you go really into nobody will say okay he doesn't like or likes me or whatsoever no it's not not, not about that it's, it's about the content and uh, and another thing is methodology which i have learned actually a lot from Riem in germany so my classes are not you know like intimidating one-to-one I don't like that so much. I like always try to work in groups and at least four students, let's say four or five students in groups. And sometimes, I mean, at least once per meeting episode, let's say we, we meet with the whole class. But but basically it's, it's just, uh, let's say we take four or five hours and with four or five students together. And this is, and I try to, to keep my word not as a last one. This is very important for me not to have this hierarchy of, of course, I, I have a little bit more experience, but uh, it is extremely important to keep this discussion open, an open discussion that the student can ask questions and feel free to ask questions and criticize each other and criticize me as well. And so we can come to points which actually can go very deep. And, you know, and sometimes even it happens, I remember like we were almost fighting with some of them. And, you know, after that, the class is done, the school is closed, we go for eating or drinking and we, we keep fighting. <laughs> you know, like, and I think this is, this is amazing. This is really something actually, what actually also forced me to rethink my arguments as well. And uh, yeah, it's uh, rethink my my argumentation. That's 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 amazing.
Yeah, this is very inspirational to hear this detail for the development of the creative minds in the systems to break down the hierarchies, to be honest and open and keep the system open so that there can be this real exchange and not to have this device of power and oppression almost. Part of the problem is the professor's willingness to open themselves up to be vulnerable themselves. It's just like one part of it. I mean, we play ping pong, we play, uh, you know, we go to parks together and, you know, it's just, you know, about music, you can talk in very different occasions. And, uh, you know, it's, it doesn't need to be always thinking of this class. And, you know, like it's kind of because this, again, institution actually, uh, yeah, it's not always nice. Yeah. And having coffee and, you know, like, and talk about particular musical problems or situations or whatsoever, you know, I mean, every person different has that different speed. That's also you need to adapt it. And, you know, like nobody calls me a professor, you know. It's it's the first name. It was a, I had an Indian student which uh, kept calling me sir, and and I really hated that because I hate this final word. You know who I am to say what is true and what is uh, what is good and what is bad, what is true or not, what is not. I can tell. You know, this is a little bit like was my own, to be honest, my own position when I was student because I was uh, kind of um, harsh student. I remember like uh, I keep discussing with Reem. You know, that was again in, also in groups. And I, I came with some big conviction for something. He kind of looked at it skeptically and, and I asked, no, <laughs> you know, like keep discussing one week after another, you know. And the, the, the best thing actually, what happened, you know, you come home and you say, okay, this idiot has no idea what I want to do, you know. But after, you know, two or three weeks, uh, very harsh discussions, you come home and you say, okay, he has clearly no idea. But why does he think like that? You know, and this is a point, this is a turning point. This is a turning point where you start to take, you start to learn, you start to take a different position. You don't need to accept this position, but you, but, but you gain this, this perspective. Yeah. And you say, ah, okay, that's, and, and basically, and this is so much more worth than somebody would say, okay, change from E flat to D flat. I mean, what do you learn from that? Nothing. Yeah. So that's, I think, I think this is extremely important and much more important than just, you know, a professor or a teacher would say, yeah, this is good or this is bad. No, you need to, to come to this uh, situation. You need, as a student, you need to, to come to the situation where you can, okay, this is good or this is bad, but self-criticism to learn that by yourself. That's very, very meaningful. And for the audience, you mentioned Riem a number of times. I'm, you're speaking about Wolfgang Riem? Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah. And also, you were also working with Peter Oetwosch and actually assisting him at the Music Academy where he is Karlsruhe, I think. And are you still working with him? I have been. No, now, uh, of course, yeah, we have different paths, of course. But I have been for a while very active with him. I have been uh, indeed uh, following him through whole Europe in all possible masterclasses. I have been assisting in certain projects. And, but now, I mean, we are in contact. He sometimes comes to my class in online regime and, um, and disputes with my students, which is amazing. And... But I'm not working with him in like as an assistant. He has an interesting feature in his career in that he's specifically interested in teaching, conducting to composers and had courses just for that. 
And I think that's very unique as an individual. Absolutely. So that's, that comes a lot of, from his way of thinking. This kind of unity, basically, like where you see composition and conducting as basically like uh, two sides of the same coin. Yes. And, uh, and for him was not to make conductors out of composers. Right, which goes back to almost my original question. So it's it's very interesting, full circle. And, you know, I saw you on your website, it says composer conductor, and I think you should add educator onto that, just, just a personal opinion. <laughs> but uh, I really feel that there's a really strong message to educators out there about how to help people develop in the best way possible. And I think it does start in the behaviors in the classroom. So it's really groundbreaking and inspirational uh, message. To kind of wrap up in a last question is what's happening in the nearest future for you? What are you working on now? What can we look forward to for uh, your, your music? My next project is now I'm writing a new piece for percussion ensemble, Percussion de Strasbourg, one of the greatest and biggest ensemble in Europe. And after that, I will write for the thin uh, musicians, a solo concerto for cello and string orchestra. So these are the main project next year. And of course, quite many concerts with uh, Lithuanian Ensemble Network for Vilnius 700 years celebrations and many more things. Well, we certainly look forward to that. And I also wanted to congratulate you for your relationship that you've built with ensembles and some of the really the great world's orchestras. I know you've had associations with Ensemble Modern, uh, London Sinfonietta, but you've also founded your own ensemble called LEN or for L-E-N, Lithuanian Ensemble Network. And I wanted to ask you a little bit about the development and the idea of not just making connections to other ensembles and organizations, but creating your own. And what was that process like? First, after seeing quite many, quite many good professional European ensembles, actually being a big part of that scene, I every time I coming back home in Lithuania, I saw many talented, very great musicians here and very interested for contemporary music and devoted for contemporary music. My only problem was it was not well organized in a sense. Somebody had to unite them. Somebody have had to make them play together, organize projects together, make a great challenges. And so I decided to start a new ensemble, which would be some sort of a network of existing ensembles. That's why it's called Lithuanian Ensemble Network. Not collect individual musicians one by one, but work with ensembles which are already in the scene, which are already interested, which have already experiences in contemporary music, such like Hordos String Quartet, Piano Trio Cascados, and so on. And that created a possibility to uh, create a big ensemble, some sort of symphonietta, which was not, which didn't exist yet, but it made me study for it. Uh, 
Uh, I want to thank you for your, your time today and thank you for being a part of this podcast. You're very welcome. I'm very glad you invited me. Thanks.
Thank you.